Good afternoon. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. I'm Kara Miller, in for Emily Rooney. Today we sit down with physician and spiritual teacher Deepak Chopra and physicist Leonard Mladenov to tackle some of the biggest questions that humans face. What role should religion play in our lives? Is there a spiritual world beyond what we can see? And how can science change our thinking, from evolution to the Big Bang to global warming? And joining me now are Deepak Chopra, author of more than 60 books, and Leonard Mladenov, author and professor at the California Institute of Technology. Thanks to both of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So first, I, I want to go back to uh, the story of you meeting. I think it was in Pasadena, California, right? And tell me how that happened. Well, uh, a organization called uh, the Skeptic Society was having a debate between uh, Michael Shermer, who uh, runs that organization, and Deepak. And I was invited to come and be in the audience. And um, it was quite a, a raucous debate, wouldn't you say, Deepak? Yeah, you'll be. Uh, n- nothing, actually, nothing negative. Everyone was <laughs> cheering on their favorite side. And, um, but my, most of it was the skeptics because it's kind of dick, right? right, right, right. <clears throat> and um, so the moderator noticed that uh, I, it was uh, being broadcast by uh, ABC News Nightline. And the moderator noticed that I was a physicist in the, uh, sitting uh, near the front. And so when the question time came around, he pulled me out of the audience and uh, insisted that I ask Deepak a question. And I didn't really have a question for Deepak, but I had noticed as he was talking that I uh, thought he was using some of the physics uh, in, in a creative fashion, let's say. <laughs> so I asked him if uh, he minded if, I, if he would like me to teach him some physics after, after the uh, debate. And he also, as in, in passing, said he was the co-author of the Grand Design with Stephen Hawking. Because he had he had invoked Stephen's name in the in his uh, debate as well, so I said I think I know him better than you, and let me tell you what he says. So, uh, but by the way, I rechecked the quote afterwards. Yeah, he's changed his stance off and on here and there. You know? I don't remember what that quote was. Oh, Stephen Hawking, a, yeah, we're yeah. talking about yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, he had a, he changed his stance on one thing. That's for sure. In the 1980s, he was widely quoted as having saying as having said that all physics, uh, fundamental physics, would be solved by the end of the century. And as we know, it's now 2011, and it didn't happen. So a few years ago, I asked him, I was sitting with him, and I said, remember that quote from the 1980s where you said physics will be solved by the end of the century? What do you think about that now? He says, I still think that. <laughs> of course, it's a new century. <laughs> right, exactly. You can just open it up yeah. every new century. Um, you know, let's go back to Caltech for a second, because, you know, you talked about the Skeptics Club. Um, I have a friend who actually went to uh, Caltech and heard Richard Dawkins speak, uh, who uh, we will get to later. But he is a big skeptic of religion and has written a book called The God Delusion. And he said he's never seen a better reception, uh, you know, for anybody than when Richard Dawkins came to speak at Caltech. So I wonder... Deepak, when you go to a place like Caltech and you speak, do you feel like you're moving anybody at all? No, actually, now there are studies, and we've discussed this, <clears throat> that um, when people go to a debate with a certain mindset or in a certain paradigm, at the end of the debate, no matter what has been discussed, everybody goes back with their point of view reinforced, even more than before. And you can see that on functional magnetic resonance scans. So nobody changes their mind. And the reason is that your education gives you a certain perspective, and then that's the perspective you have. You know, it's you're in that box no matter what. And I'm not saying this of scientists. It's true of anybody, you know. So if you take a religion, we had a religious fundamentalist at our debate last night. And, you know, we talked about all the things we're talking about. And he said, how about the Virgin Mary and Jesus Christ? And he was very upset that, you know, we didn't bring that up. So nobody changes their minds. This is quite clear. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so then what's the point of debating? Well, you know, there are people who haven't decided one way or the other, and I think few. that's that's one. Sorry, you <laughs> think few. few? Well, on this subject, there's probably like five or six, and fewer. So. But on, on other subjects, right, there may right. be a greater number. And from my point of view, one of the reasons I wrote the book, even aimed at Deepak's followers who will not be convinced by what I say, is to give people a better understanding of the scientific method and scientists, who they are, how they think, and how we come to now uh, to knowledge and science. Um, Leonard Mladenov, give me a sense of your own sort of religious journey. Was there a, a time when you believed in religion? What role has religion played in your life, and what role does it play now? Well, 
The headline would probably be to quote Laplace or probably misquote Laplace, who said something like, uh, when he was asked about um, where's God in his theories, I have no need of that hypothesis. <laughs> I, I don't quite go that far because I, first of all, I recognize that science can never prove or disprove religion. You know, I was widely, Stephen and I, Stephen Hawking and I were widely misquoted in the grand design as having said that we, that we say that science says there's no God. And what we said was that the universe could have come without a God. We don't need a God for the creation of the universe. Uh, that's far from saying that there is, we prove that there is no God. We're just saying that physical laws can describe the universe and we don't need miracles or God or some outside force. But science really doesn't deal with the question of God and science can never prove that there's no God. And personally, in my own life, I've never been attracted to the idea that there's a biblical, of a biblical God, uh, a, a God that looks over us, that makes the, uh, the Red Sox win or lose the World Series, or I guess the Cubs always lose or never get to the World Series anymore. Uh, you know, that just never, I never felt inside. I mean, I'm not talking about intellectually. I just never felt that, uh, you know, that idea be attractive to me. And then when I was, as a kid, I was raised very Jewish, and I would go and read the Bible, which and I still go to the synagogue on the high holidays. And as I, I read, I read the, the Hummus, the Bible, and I, the, the values uh, in Judaism of education and community, I'm, I'm a great supporter of. But then when I read in the Bible that homosexuals should be put to death, I was just reading that uh, last week, or that children who dishonor their father or mother should be put to death. I, I start to wonder how anyone could believe that. And if today, few people would, uh, <clears throat> would agree with those, those particular uh, two things that I just said, but the same people who managed to read the Bible and ignore that or say that doesn't really apply, they still believe in biblical theory of the universe, right? And they, 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 they um, oppose evolution because it, it contradicts the Bible. And I wonder how come, how come they, they managed to rationalize why some of these other things in the Bible uh, don't apply anymore to daily to the to, in today's society, but they still believe in biblical story of the creation. So, what what does it say to you about religion, though, that you grew up in a, an observant household, that you still go to the high holy days, and that you don't believe anything of what you read? <laughs> I'm a skeptic. See, I, I'm a scientist. I believe in observation, and <laughs> and I also believe in my own. Uh, in my own sense, I believe in the human spirit. So I, I go to the synagogue because I believe in Jew, Jewish values and because I feel uh, tied to the traditions and I enjoy that part of life, uh, culture and traditions, and and continuing what I was brought up with. But I don't take uh, the Jewish God literally. And in Judaism, it's really not that... Um, it, it's very common to have my kind of belief. It's not a real fundamentalist uh, religion. Oh, not that there aren't people who, who take the Bible more seriously, but it's more about community and values, education. Um, Deepak, I want to know about your journey, but also what do you make of Leonard's tie to religion, even though in, in a lot of ways he's very distant from it? His mind is entangled, and I didn't say quantum entanglement, just entangled. His mind is entangled through culture and history with the minds of the biblical prophets and seers. And he can't get out of it, no matter how intellectually he dislikes it. He, his mind is part of that mind. And that's true of everybody. Our minds are entangled. There's no such thing as a separate mind. We're having this conversation right now. We're triggering off neural networks, remodeling them, and people who are listening to us are also doing that. And for that, they need, so our minds are all entangled now with social networks, etc. And they're entangled horizontally, but also vertically through, through culture, through history, through social indoctrination, and what we call the hypnosis of cultural conditioning. And so he can't get out of it, even though intellectually he realizes that it's nonsense. So, so then, is it possible that religion has a deeper pull than uh, Leonard can explain? It's not religion that has a deeper. You see, what we call religion today is really cultural mythology. I mean, every culture has a mythology, which is the attempt of the collective mind at that period of history with that geography and which that ethnic background to find meaning. You find, you know, the, uh, like the Arabs and the Jews 
in the desert looking at the sky wondering about the meaning of existence collectively came up with a story and that's everywhere and they come up with the best story given what they know about the universe at that moment and so that's what religion is and you know i think i don't believe in that kind of god either i mean so when we say richard dawkins you know i think he's become such a fundamentalist that he's creating a straw man as a god and then going out and destroying that with a lot of passion and mean spirited behavior to in my view he's not like that you know he he he's a pure scientist who says you're talking about Richard Dawkins or No, or no, I'm talking oh. about uh, Leonard. <laughs> you're pointing at me, I but know. this is radio Deepak. I know. I know. <laughs> okay, so Leonard's not like that, you know, we've traveled a little bit together. He he's not like that. He says I only believe in what I observe. I have a problem with that. We can get to that, but um so we have strong disagreements and I've never questioned the science, but I uh, I have a lot of other questions, you know, so I think we have an evolving spirituality that could be very very much um consistent with what we know about the world through science. Okay, so let's back up for a second and and Deepak give me a sense of your own spiritual journey. You you talk in the book about how your mother went and prayed to Rama every day. Mm-hmm. Was there a time that you believed in different kinds of gods in a single sort of christian jewish god tell me no my know. my background was that my mother was a devout hindu my father was a cardiologist who had trained in england and he didn't believe in any religion or anything like that but my mother would tell us uh, all these stories which now in hindsight are mythical stories right they're all religious stories are mythical stories that have been created by the collective imagination if you will Now I happened to go to a Catholic school um, when I was brought up my education was the Irish Christian missionary brothers and got a really good education but then in the school there were Zoroastrians there were Muslims there were Jews there were Christians it was very eclectic and I loved it because everybody had different holidays and you know you had celebrations so I associated these different religions with having a holiday a, you know celebration so i was drawn to it but then as i grew older and i got more influenced by my father and i went to medical school i dropped it totally i mean i i i thought very sweetly of my mother but i knew that she was out of touch with reality and throughout medical school i had the same attitude uh, i then came uh, to the united states and i spent the first 23 years of my life here in boston in all the medical schools here and training at Tufts and BU and going to the Deaconess and so on. And during this time in my training, um, I started to, and during my early years of practice, there were two things that influenced me. One was I realized that the human biology is totally unpredictable. you can have two patients who have the same illness they get the same treatment they have different outcomes same physician everything and so i was wondering you know were we making out biological systems to be more scientifically understandable than they were number 1 number 2 you know any physician will tell you there are certain things called placebo responses you give somebody a dummy drug and they have a biological response to it so something's happening that they're translating some kind of meaning into a biological response most people also don't realize that there's something the opposite of placebo it's called the nocebo response physicians don't talk about it it's like mrs smith you have breast cancer you have 5 years to live okay she hears that and she gets a negative response and frequently her biology responds negatively so i started to wonder where do we process meaning you know these are words right that i'm speaking to you if i said to someone if somebody said to you i love you and you were thinking of divorcing them you would have a different biological response than if they said i love you and you were in love with them exactly the same words tympanic vi- membrane vibrates the same way the electricity in the brain the meaning is different how does a physical physical system process meaning i started reading about this 
I started, my training was neuroendocrinology. I started looking at how, you know, the molecules of emotion and how they affect, you know, dopamine, serotonin, etc. Make a long story short, I became very fascinated. Where is the mind? And then I started reading about this, and I couldn't find that there is such a thing that you can localize. You know, it's all over the place. It's relational, it's embodied, it's cultural, it goes through history. And I said, is there a deeper domain that the mind uh, is coming from? Is there an underlying consciousness? And then I started following the teachings and writings of Krishnamurti and others, and I personally got into meditation. And, you know, I started seeing that there's an evolving spirituality which does not deny any of the scientific facts that he's talking about, but which says that, you know, when when you're looking at the universe as out there, there's somebody who's looking at the universe. And who is that person? Who's the observer in the midst of the observation? Science never talks about that. And yet everything we know about the universe, everything, his, his science is based on theory, experimentation, and observation. Theory is conceived in consciousness. Des- experimentation is designed in consciousness. Observation is in consciousness. And science never addresses consciousness and the mystery of consciousness. That's where we differ. You see, he, say, he says that the brain produces the mind. I say, no, it's the mind that produces the brain. We're going to take a quick break, and and when we come back, one thing I want to really get into is the role of spirituality and religion in America today, particularly in our politics, see where you come down on that. Uh, Listeners, what's your take on the science versus spirituality debate? Which worldview is right, or is there room for both? Email us at emilyrooneyshow at wgbh.org, and let us know or visit us on the web at wgbh.org slash emilyrooney, where you can link to our Facebook and Twitter pages. And I should mention that Deepak and Leonard will debate tonight, October 5th at 7 p.m. at the First Parish Church in Cambridge. You can find more information on our website about the event, the book, and our guests. We're going to take a short break. More with Deepak Chopra and Leonard Mladenov when we continue. I'm Kara Miller, and you're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. Stay with us. WGBH programs exist because of you and Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank provides private and commercial banking and investment management and trust services to individuals and businesses. You can learn more by visiting bostonprivatebank.com. And Hebrew Senior Life. You can learn how to make the transition in retirement at Hebrew Senior Life's College of Retirement Living. Two sessions starting October 27th. Registration online at hslindependentliving.org. And the Massachusetts Freemasons, who believe a man's greatness can be measured, not by his wealth or fame, but by his deeds, his character, and his love for his fellow creatures. You can learn more at askafreemason.org. On the next Fresh Air, a former prosecutor who spent years interviewing Islamic extremists about their motivations. We talk with Ken Ballon, author of Terrorists in Love. Also, Howard Gordon, former executive producer of 24, talks about his new series, Homeland. It's about a POW who's just come home from Iraq and the CIA agent who suspects he's become a spy for al-Qaeda. Join us. This afternoon at 2 on 89.7 WGBH. We're betting you'd rather hear this. And joining us now is the director, Ken Burns. We were drawn to just a phenomenal story. Then about this. 18 more people this hour. That's why we're asking you to make so that So let's call. raise a glass to WGBH sustainers, members who make gifts in monthly installments that automatically renew. Because thanks to them, this program is coming to you fundraiser free. Join the movement. Call 888-897-9424 or give securely online at WGBH.org. Insights, ideas, and opinions about issues rooted here in Boston. Kendall Square is the densest hub of innovation and entrepreneurial investment in the country. Local issues, local talk. Boston Public Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. I'm Kara Miller, in for Emily Rooney. We continue our discussion now with physician and spiritual teacher Deepak Chopra and physicist Leonard Mladenov as they discuss their new book, World of the War... 
war of the worldviews, science versus spirituality. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the role that um, spirituality plays in our life in America today. Um, and we have a clip from 1960 and, uh, from uh, John F. Kennedy getting ready to run for president and talking about the role that religion plays for him in politics. Let's listen. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source. So that was John F. Kennedy's 1960 address to the Greater Houston Ministerial Association. And I want to jump ahead now to 2007, where Mitt Romney also had to deal with issues of faith and uh, how he was going to address it. And I just want you to listen to the change in tone in terms of where religion figures in public life between what you heard in 1960 and what you hear now. Let's listen to it. When I place my hand on the Bible and take the oath of office, that oath becomes my highest promise to God. If I'm fortunate to become your president, I will serve no one religion, no one group, no one cause, and no one interest. There are some for whom these commitments are not enough. They would prefer it if I would simply distance myself from my religion, say that it's more a tradition than my personal conviction, or disavow one or another of its precepts. That I will not do. I believe in my Mormon faith, and I endeavor to live by it. Leonard Mladenov, what do you think when you hear the change in tone between sort of John F. Kennedy, let's keep these, you know, religion and, and the state separate, and, and Mitt Romney, who really commits to his religion and to a belief in God, do you think that going in that direction, does that concern you? Well, both are saying the same thing in one sense, which was trying to reassure people who are not either Catholic or Mormon that uh, that they won't uh, do some strange things that, that they wouldn't like. The difference is that uh, Kennedy didn't feel the need to say, but I still am like you. I'm still very religious. I still believe in the Bible. And uh, Romney, of course, uh, in today's atmosphere, felt that he had to embrace the Bible uh, as as many politicians do. I think that's a very bad development. That's what I think about it. I think that uh, Kennedy was right about the separation of church and state. Uh, and I'm not enough of a historian to know the ebbs and flows of, of that uh, uh, separation throughout our history. But we're in a period now where people use the Bible to, uh, politicians use the Bible to, uh, for their own means to, to get votes. And uh, just like they use any other issue. Deepak Chopra, what's your take on the infusion of spirituality and religion more and more into the political process? I think we've regressed <clears throat> in the 60s. When I was growing up, I was a medical student in the 60s. There were great movements. The peace movement had just started. The feminist movement, uh, Gloria Steinem, right here in Cambridge, burned her bra. And <laughs> uh, there was the Viet anti-Vietnam uh, protests. Uh, uh, there was busing happening in uh, in Boston, and right. people had the huge, you know, uh, resentment or reaction against it. Uh, so, in my mind, as a young person now just finished medical school, the world was going to change. And now, forty years later, we've regressed. We've become more tribal, more ethnocentric, more racist, more bigoted. Uh, we have homophobia. I don't know what's happened. I, you know, it's gone back, and it's gone back so far that it's scary. That you know, the president has to say that I believe in God or I have to do this, um, otherwise he won't be elected. And this kind of fundamentalism um, is on the rise everywhere. There's Hindu fundamentalism in India. There is uh, Islamic fundamentalism throughout the world right now in, the, in all the Islamic countries. It's, it's very I, scary right I now. I don't know if, it's, uh, if we've totally gone back. I mean, we've definitely gone back with regard to the fact that politicians have to uh, 
right, emphasize the religious aspects. But well, when I was applying to college, for instance, uh, I went to Brandeis here in Boston, and back then I was told, well, that's the Jewish school because uh, the other schools don't like to let Jews in. And I think that doesn't happen today, at least with my kids. I, I don't hear much talk about where you have to apply because you're Jewish. I mean, you do hear a little bit about um, that some schools don't want to have too many Jews. But, but back in my day, I think they were just starting to let go of the quotas. And I think we, you know, and you mentioned homophobia. I think the homophobia in the 60s was much worse than it is today. So I think we have made some, some progress in some of these um, areas. But I don't remember politicians having to all... Um, reassure people that they that they believe in the Bible as they do today. And, and yet, you know, a lot of people would argue that their spirituality de- derives from their religion. The reason that they are spiritual people is because of a group that they belong to, is because that they have read the Bible. Um, in fact, like they're I wa- spiritual because they read the Bible or they read the Bible because they're spiritual? Well, probably both, that it's a cycle, you know, that they go to mm-hmm. church and that they um, hear what the preacher has to say and what he has to say is very inspirational. And, um, and because of that, obviously, that feeds them reading the Bible more. I mean, certainly we've seen every, almost every president recently make that argument. Um, and we uh, have Bill candidates was born actually again and, right now. We have right? candidates um, they're running because God told them to. Uh, right. Actually, let's just take a real quick um, listen to Michelle Bachman running in 2006 for the House of Representatives, and she's explaining why uh, she became a lawyer. My husband said, now you need to go and get a postdoctorate degree in tax law. Tax law? I hate taxes. Why should I go and do something like that? But the Lord says, be submissive. Wives, you are be submissive to your husbands. And, and Deepak Chopra, I mean, she's coming, she's not just making this up. I mean, she's coming back to 1 Corinthians that does indeed say that women should be submissive to their husbands. I mean, if that's where people get their spirituality from, how can you uh, criticize it? Or can you? I, you know, I don't even know what to say. It's so out out of my world. You know, I'm interested more in the mystery of our existence. I don't buy into any religion because, you know, just because it came from such ancient times and people didn't really know anything about the Big Bang or evolution or any of that. So uh, I don't believe in the supernatural. I don't believe in miracles. I believe in a rational universe that possibly has a rational source. Uh, you know, as soon as you would use the words God or intelligent design, you're in trouble because people already have labels around that. I do believe, though, that if you examine your own awareness, your own consciousness, you find within it uh, creativity, insight, intuition, imagination, free will, choice. So I do believe that there's a fundamental consciousness that we are part of, and that consciousness is evolving, just like everything else is evolving, and that if we can harness the the creativity that we already have, then we won't have any problem with science. Now, where I differ with, um, with uh, Leonard is that I do believe that the cosmos is embedded with intelligence, creativity, self-organization. I don't doubt the Big Bang at all, but, you know, we have, even in our current science, there are certain things we'll never know, never know, not because uh, of technological reasons, but in principle. Uh, There are certain places where the laws of physics preclude us from knowing ultimate reality. Furthermore, what we know about the universe is what um, we observe through a human nervous system and is based on the questions we ask when we observe. So the the universe, as science knows it, is a very human nervous system, a human universe. If there's a universe outside human consciousness, we'll never know what it is. So it's irrelevant. So until we answer the most fundamental questions, not only about the observed, but of who's observing, is there a deeper consciousness here? And you can't do that through science because, you know, when you're observing something, you are the observer and you can't find consciousness out there in the objects of observation when consciousness is doing the observing. So everything we examine about the brain is inferential. You know, we, we study the brain and we decide, oh, this is happening. If I asked you to imagine a red rose right now, you see a picture. There's no picture in your brain. There are some electromagnetic uh, reactions. 
uh, electrochemical reactions. Where's the picture that you see? Or if I asked you to think of your mother and feel love, again, there's something happening in your brain, but that's not what you're experiencing. The subjective feeling that we experience in consciousness is not explainable at the moment. He admits that, that science has no explanation for of consciousness. And since this whole universe is conceived in consciousness, um, experienced in consciousness, perceived in consciousness, and we have no explanation of consciousness, we're still in the midst of a mystery. In fact, the mystery is even more inexplicable. The universe begins as a dot, now spans billions of light years across, uh, with all these not only unknowns, but unknowables. The mystery is enough to put me into a state of submission into humility and awe and reverence. And that's a religious experience. You're listening to WGBH Radio online at WGBH.org. I'm Kara Miller, in for Emily Rooney, and we are joined by Deepak Chopra and Leonard Mladenov, authors of the new book, War of the Worldviews, Science versus Spirituality. Leonard Mladenov, let me pick up on what Deepak says and, and ask you, you know, we were talking during the break about the Nobel Prize in Physics. When, when you know, there are these dis- discoveries that show that everything we maybe thought was happening up until a few years ago turns out to be a little bit on its head. That wasn't really the case. There's all this sort of dark matter that we don't know anything about. Do you ever think, wow, we, we know so little, maybe at the base of it all, there is some sort of consciousness, as Deepak says, or some sort of um, intelligence that, that we haven't thought about yet. Well, theories in science evolve, and, and they do change as we make further observations. They, they don't, we haven't, I disagree with you when you say that everything was turned on its head. We, we've learned uh, some some. Well, I don't think people thought that the universe was expanding. Right, but But actually, uh, even though we don't understand quite what is making the uh, expansion accelerate, there is actually, and has been for, since Einstein came up with the theory, a neat term in his equations that actually allow for that, so it's hardly overthrowing Einstein's theory. And in physics, of course, we always allow for the possibility that we will have a revolutionary discovery that will turn things on its head, like the uh, experiment in CERN recently that that showed evidence of... uh, supporting the idea that neutrinos might travel faster than light. It, most physicists think that's not going to bear out, and when, when, they, when the experiment is repeated, that we'll find that that, that wasn't really what was happening. Um, but we're, we're open-minded in science, and, we're, we're, and as opposed to uh, religion or spirituality that Deep Topak talks about that's been around for centuries or millennia, and, and people still refer to the old ideas, in science we're always open to, to new ideas based on observation, based on seeing that something is actually different, and then we tend to modify our theories, but they're never really thrown out because once, a th- once we've had a theory that's been tested many times and there's a lot of evidence for it, when you find a realm or, or some idea that doesn't fit or some area uh, of uh, experiment that, that that theory doesn't describe, it doesn't mean that all your uh, past observations are wrong and the theory has no, has no use. It just means we've learned more, we extend the theory, we modify the theory, and we, and we move on. So in science, it's not a question of throwing out what we thought was true when something new comes. It's a question of seeing deeper or seeing into a new realm, and we, and we modify our theories in that way. But So you're saying, will we someday see that consciousness is, is, uh, is the real thing? And of course, you, we might someday see anything. That is, that I, I'm not going to rule out anything, but let me just say that Deepak talks about another realm, an invisible realm uh, in the universe. In our, in our book, we talk about the physical universe, where the universe, physical universe came from, we talk about life, and we talk about the mind and the brain, neuroscience. And in all these areas, Deepak feels that, that, that the laws of physics are somehow guided by some other purpose, some organizing purpose, some higher intelligence. And as a scientist, I explain how we've come to the ideas that we have uh, in these realms, and that there are laws of nature that, that govern what's going on. And that if there was another realm that we, that we don't observe that would be guiding the laws of nature, then if, if, it, if it has any, to a scientist, any meaning, if it had any practical meaning, if it was actually doing something other than the laws say it's going to do, we would notice that. We would notice little exceptions here and there because this other realm is guiding it. I can and, see Deepak wants okay, to get Okay, let me you, just yeah, finish okay. and say, if we don't notice that, if, if, if there is another realm, but, and it's, I don't know, whatever Deepak will explain what he means, uh, but, but if, it's, if it's somehow 
guiding it without affecting what's actually going on, then as a scientist, we don't think it's a very useful idea. It's only a useful idea to say if there's a deeper realm, if that deeper realm has an effect on, on what we actually experience and observe. You know, it's very interesting that Leonard actually doesn't get what I'm saying because I've never actually said anything that there's there's anything supernatural about I anything. Didn't say okay, no, other realm. You know, I mean, all I'm saying is, if there are laws, right, and they're so precise, that they have to be precise to the nth degree. Why are there laws? How come the universe conforms to these laws? And his answer is. I don't know. So, uh, you know, I have a question for you. So if there's intelligence or consciousness behind all of this, then, you know, how do you think about the question? So how do you think about questions like, well, if somebody's thinking through all of this, then somebody is deciding that, you know, people are going to die in terrible wars, right? That I mean, if there's somebody who has enough power. There's no somebody. There is. Or some there entity. There is matter. No, there's no okay. entity. There's matter. Mm-hmm. There's energy, there's information, and there's a field of possibilities, which I call consciousness. And I've defined consciousness to him many, many times as a field of potentiality, as a field of possibilities, as a field of uncertainty, as a field of creativity, as an intention field. This is the evolving spirituality, which is has its basis in not only Eastern sages, but in Thierry de Chardin and uh, Emerson and Thoreau. It has a huge, rich tradition that he's not familiar with, just like I'm not familiar with fundamental physics. But this not only has a rich tradition, it has an experiential base. It's, it's, uh, it's the source of uh, our... You, you know, Thierry de Chardin used... He was a great Christian theologian. Um, he used the words geosphere to refer to, to the f- mineral world. He used the word biosphere to refer to the biological uh, world, the film of biological activity, which includes the ecosystem, the soil, because you pick up a handful of soil. It's microorganisms. 90% of your genes, by the way, are microbial. You're a walking factory of bacteria, okay? 60% of your genes are the same as a banana. 80% of your genes are the same as a monkey. Sorry, as a mouse. 98 as a monkey. So there's a history that is recorded in the entire biosphere. And when you look at that history, it's a history of self-organization, of uh, evolution, of cooperation, of creativity, in my mind, therefore, I don't separate chance from necessity, from purpose to um, randomness. They're all part of the creative process. Is there a religion that gets closest to what you're talking about, let's say Buddhism with meditation? To some or? extent, yeah, Buddhism does, because Buddhism does not think in terms of parts. It thinks in terms of patterns of behavior of a wholeness, uh, so as the flow of the universe. But just let me complete the model. There's the geosphere, there's the biosphere, there's the noosphere, which is the collective mind, the information field, and then there's a theosphere, which is the fundamental ground. And these are part of a continuum. And I don't think we have to get into any kind of esoteric stuff. It's very obvious that the biosphere is recycling as your body, that your mind is not separate from the collective mind. You know, where your mind is part of the circulation of information. And that if you have a consciousness, which you must because you're listening to me right now, without which you wouldn't have any perception, it's also part of a larger domain of consciousness because it can't live by itself. So that's all I'm saying. And the spiritual traditions talk about that experience of transcendence, unity consciousness. They talk about ethical values that are derived from that experience of unity, like love, compassion, joy, equanimity. They also talk about, in fact, not in those terms, but there are many modern mathematicians and scientists like Sir Roger Penrose who say that mathematical truth, musical truth, Platonic values and the fundamental building blocks of the universe all exist as possibility beyond what he calls 
Planck scale space-time geometry. We're going to take one last break, and when we come back, I'm going to ask Leonard Mladenov about love. And listeners, we want to hear from you. Does science accurately describe our universe, or do the world's spiritual traditions, uh, traditions unravel mysteries that are beyond the scientific method? Email us at emilyrooneyshow at wgbh.org and let us know or visit us on the web at gbh.org slash emilyrooney, where you can link to our Facebook and Twitter pages. We're going to take a short break. And when we continue, more with Deepak Chopra and Leonard Mladenov. I'm Kara Miller, and you're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. Stay with us. This program is made possible thanks to you and the Valley Group, builders of Amesbrook Farm, 14 shingle-styled condominium homes in Marshfield Hills, surrounded by 200 acres of conservation land. Open house October 15th from 1.30 to 5. V-A-L-L-E group.com. And Skinner, auctioneers and appraisers of antiques and fine art. You might consider auction when downsizing a home or selling a collection. 60 auctions annually, 20 collecting categories, Boston and Marlboro. Online at SkinnerInc.com. And the Armenian Library and Museum of America in Watertown, presenting Karsh, Celebrating Humanity, an exhibition of use of Karsh photographs of great personalities from Churchill to Picasso. Now open, almainc.org. I'm Marco Werman. This house in Kabul, Afghanistan, has all the amenities. The central heater and also the cooling system, ACs. And chandeliers. Yeah. (laughs) The house has been empty for months. As the U.S. military prepares to leave, few Westerners are renting here, and Afghanistan's economy is struggling. That's next time on The World. Coming up at 3 here on 89.7 WGBH. Here's to everyone who did their part over the past few days to support Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Your support is already making an impact in your community, helping to provide the best in radio and television to people all over New England and all over the world. If you'd still like to secure your copy of Ken Burns' Prohibition on DVD or Blu-ray, or if you just want to do your part, you can always do so online at WGBH.org. And thanks. The latest local news headlines are as close as your smartphone with the new WGBH app. With a single tap, you can dig deeper into the news of the day from business to arts and culture. Just a free download away at the App Store or at WGBH.org. Welcome back. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. I'm Kara Miller, in for Emily Rooney. We are back with Deepak Chopra and Leonard Mladenov, co-authors of the new book, War of the Worldviews, Science versus Spirituality. Um, and Leonard Mladenov, I want to start off with a concept that, that Deepak Chopra talks about, uh, which is love. And um, you actually, in, in your part of the book, and this book is set up as this conversation between Deepak and and you, and you sort of refer to each other in essays and say, you know, I disagree with him there and I disagree with him there. You, you talk about um, the scientist Richard Feynman um, and a letter that he wrote. If you can tell us a little bit about that. Well, th- this was in the context of uh, that Deepak was, talk- Deepak was talking about how scientists are so coldly objective and reductionist and, and um, materialist uh, and not spiritual. And I was... Uh, contradicting that and saying that well, scientists can be very spiritual, don't mix up the objectivity of science with the humanity of scientists. And this letter was a letter, Richard Feynman is an iconic, legendary physicist, and he married uh, his childhood love in the 40s, and that she died shortly after that of tuberculosis. And the letter that you're going to read was a letter that he wrote to her uh, a year after she died. Um, Okay, and here's some of the letter. Um, Darlene, I adore you, sweetheart. It is such a terribly long time since I last wrote to you, almost two years, but I know you'll excuse me because you understand how I am, stubborn and realistic, and I thought there was no sense to writing. But now I know, my darling wife, that it is right to do what I have delayed in doing and what I have done so much in the past. I want to tell you I love you. And it, it goes on. But I guess the question I would throw back to you here is, if science has explained to us, um, you know, why the human mind is the way that it is and, and why we've evolved certain ways, why would it make any sense for Richard Feynman to love somebody 
who's gone, who, you know, he, he can't have children with, right? He's not going to obviously propagate the species with, with a, a woman who has passed away. Um, mustn't there be something else besides the sort of biological imperative? Because that's clearly not why he's writing this letter. So are you, are you using the letter as, a, as evidence for creationism? I'm not no, quite sure what the question <laughs> Don't go there. You know, we're not at that level of conversation at all. No, I was just thinking of it as you know, what's the justification for something like love, which, which you know, you would think, right, that the bi- biological imperative is for him to, like, have more children and, and for those children to be successful and healthy and to sort of propagate the species. But what he's doing there is spending effort on something that is not going to get him anywhere. Right. But I don't think that you can take the, uh, you know, biological evolution to that level where you're saying that every particular action or feeling of every single organism at all times is logically connected to the propagation of their genes. Um, there are species that are monogamous, there are species that are not monogamous. Uh, we understand to some degree in many of the species exactly what the brain circuitry is that causes that, the genetics, the, uh, the neurotransmitters, and if you take uh, certain kinds of voles, it's a, a kind of a rodent. There are some that are monogamous or some that aren't. We can inject chemicals into their brain and switch one to, to the other one. So um, from the scientific point of view, you know, you can study love and you can study where it came from. You can, people can study the evolutionary uh, purpose or, or utility of it. Uh, as people, of course, we, that doesn't explain the meaning at all of, of life or of love. And, and for that, we, we try to be, or it's good to be a spiritual human being and, and to experience love in that sense, and and that's not the same as the mechanistic explanation of, of love. Yeah, go ahead. I wonder if you, Leonard, when you say spiritual, and Deepak, when you talk about consciousness, I wonder if we aren't just talking about exactly the same thing, a love that we can't understand. It, there's no real reason for it, but it's just there in some other I, I don't I hesitate to use the word dimension because that's I know that's wrong, but you know, some other Here's place. How to look at it, okay? Yeah. Science deals with measurement. Okay. It deals with and every in the most fundamental levels of measurement are units of mass and energy, period. Okay. Science doesn't ask who's measuring. Okay. It, that is subjective. You can't weigh love and you can't give it units of mass and energy. So science has nothing to say about it, other than these are the correlations, molecular correlations. This is what happens in the brain. But what happens in the brain is not what you're experiencing. This is called, in science, in neuroscience today, it's called the hard problem of consciousness. We cannot explain it. We don't even have a model to explain it at the moment. He believes that one day we will, but we don't at the I, moment. Actually, I, I, huh? I, I, I didn't say I believe one day we will. I said one day we may. We may. Okay. So, these so, little distinctions are uh, important. Yeah, yeah, important. So <laughs> one day we may. But, you know, I don't think we will because, you know, when you're looking for objectively for love, you, how do you prove that your mother loved you? There's no proof. But you know she did, okay, if she did. So this is where we have to expand our idea that we can't understand reality just by science. We can understand reality objectively, partial reality, but if we don't understand reality subjectively, it's a partial understanding. And if you understand reality only par- uh, subjectively, we also don't understand total reality. Total reality is subjective and objective. And there may be two sides of the same coin. And that two sides of the same coin is what I'm calling the deeper consciousness, the realm, if you will, from where everything emerges. It's the mystery. Um, In our last few minutes, I want to ask both of you where you see spirituality going in our, you know, particularly in America? I mean, where, where do you think its place is? How plugged in do you think people are to it? I mean, and, and Leonard, you can sort of talk about that, but you can also talk about science, which I think has had some PR problems in terms of trying to explain things like, even just like evolution and global warming. But, but Deepak, let me start with you and give me a sense of where you think the country is going in terms of I, I'm, spiritual I'm not optimistic. I'm not optimistic. I think we have, uh, first of all, very primitive explanations of everything uh, uh, outside of science. The, the 
the worldview that we have in America, the religious spiritual worldview, is very, very primitive. Uh, on the other hand, also, we have modern capacities married or linked to those primitive beliefs. So we have an unsustainable environment right now with climate change and global warming. Estimates are if we don't change, in 100 years, we could be an extinct species. And, you know, this is coming from very reliable sources. So we're in trouble. And the only thing that could save us is an authentic understanding of the human spirit, an evolving spirit. But it's not happening. Okay, so I'm not at all uh, optimistic. Now, of course, when I speak and I write, I have self-selected audience. The people who come to my lectures or workshops or read my books, when I see them, oh, there are thousands of them, but, you know, they're very few compared to what is really happening out there. You just look at the political dialogue. So I'm not optimistic. And Leonard, give me your your take on where the country is going. In terms I, of I pretty much agree with Deepak. <laughs> and I, I think the country has always had a certain anti-intellectual bent and anti-science bent. And it, it's, it's really bad now. And it's made worse by politicians who use it uh, for their own benefit. For instance, the global warming. I mean, to me, the global warming uh, story is a lot like the... Uh, tobacco story from the 60s where, where evidence was piling up uh, very quickly and very uh, strong on, on the side that, that smoking is uh, very detrimental to your health. Yet the tobacco companies supported uh, the few people and politicians who would, uh, who would dispute that. And, and people used it for their own uh, ends, uh, that, uh, that debate. And today, you know, global warming has a great uh, fighting global warming has a great economic cost, and there's uh, a lot of people who, for whom it's, as uh, Gore said, inconvenient. And uh, a lot of politicians are choosing to, uh, to ignore the science behind it and, uh, and to uh, jump on that, that side of the issue and to use that as a uh, kind of a tool of demagoguery to get votes. Fascinating discussion. Thank you very much to my guests, Deepak Chopra and Leonard Mladenov, authors of the new book, War of the Worldviews, Science versus Spirituality. I also want to mention again that you can catch Deepak and Leonard live and in person tonight at the First Paris Church in Cambridge at an event co-sponsored by the Humanist Society and Harvard Bookstore. And you can find more on our website about the event, the book, and our guests, wgbh.org slash Emily Rooney. We will be back tomorrow at noon with a primer on the new iPhone. And stay with us now for the Callie Crossley Show coming up next. She will take an in-depth look at what casinos will mean for Massachusetts. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of WGBH Radio on the web at wgbh.org, Boston Public Radio. I'm Kara Miller. Have a great afternoon.